Well, good morning. Trust that you all had a, a nice Christmas and are getting ready for the, the new year. As we sang, another a year is dawning. Uh, today we are at that uh, time of the year where we begin to uh, look back on the things that have taken place in our lives over the past 12 months, and we begin to look forward and consider where we'll be at this time next year. It's a time to uh, take stock of our life and, and make decisions about the future. And often that comes in the form of something that we call New Year's resolutions. Uh, these are typically commitments that we would make uh, to better ourselves in some way over the next 12 months. And oftentimes uh, the typical resolutions have something to do with uh, eating better or exercising more hopefully maybe reading through our Bible uh, in the next year. Uh, but if we're honest, uh, we do this and we commit to it for a little while, and after a short while, uh, maybe when we get into the month of February, about the time we hit Leviticus in our Bible reading plan, uh, we all start to fall off uh, the horse one by one. So then next year at this time, we're back and we're in the same place. We make the same resolutions again and we start uh, the process all over but in all seriousness as Christians it is important that we would consider what the Bible has to say about any commitments that we would make in our life and so as we are approaching this time of year where uh, we decide to make what we call New Year's resolutions we should ask ourselves the question does the Bible have anything to say about our culture's activity of making New Year's resolutions. Does the Bible have anything to say about our culture's practice of making New Year's resolutions? And the best place to turn to that is the Bible to see what it has to say. So go ahead and turn with me now uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, we'll be looking at uh, verses 6 to 10. And as you're turning... Let me give a little background information about 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to his younger co-worker named, you might guess, Timothy. Uh, Timothy was leading the church at Ephesus, and the church at Ephesus was experiencing some problems because of a group of false teachers that were causing harm within the church and within the households in Ephesus. And so Timothy uh, was left behind by Paul with a mandate to set things back in order in the church at Ephesus. And how he was to do this, he was to silence those who were teaching things contrary to the truth, contrary to the true gospel. And in 1 Timothy 3, if you want to turn back a page, uh, verses 14 and 15, Paul explains the purpose of, of the entire letter. And he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you might know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So in other words, Timothy, my desire is to come to you soon, but I might be delayed. And if I am delayed, I'm writing this letter to you so that you will be better able to instruct the people within the church at Ephesus how they are to behave within the church and within the society that surrounds them. 
because of this false teaching that was going on uh, within the church at Ephesus, the, the members of that church, some of the members of that church were acting and behaving um, in all sorts of inappropriate ways. And so Paul writes to Timothy again in order that he might instruct them on how to behave and conduct themselves. And so because of that, as Christians today, uh, this letter remains valuable and useful to us. Uh, the central message of 1 Timothy is that the gospel message, when it is believed, will lead to godly living by those who have believed. The gospel message, when believed, will lead to godly living by those who have believed. So there are consequences to believing the gospel message. And those consequences include a life that is visibly different from those who have not believed. And that difference, friends, is godliness. And that will be our focus for today. Train yourself for godliness. So look with me now in your Bibles. At, back in 1 Timothy 4, at verses 6 to 10. And I'll read these as you follow along. 1 Timothy 4, 6 to 10. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toll and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. So in this chapter, beginning in verse 6, Paul begins by explaining to Timothy that if he takes the instructions that Paul has laid out to him in this letter, and he takes and he presents those to the brothers and the sisters within the church, then he will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. And on the surface, that sounds like it might not be too difficult, but, but this was no small order. If you look up in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, notice what Timothy is dealing with. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So as Paul is calling these false teachers liars whose consciences are seared, and these are the people that Timothy is having to deal with. And these liars are within the church, and they're teaching a message that is contrary to Paul and Timothy, and apparently they have an audience. Apparently they have a captive audience of people who are listening. And so Timothy's mandate is to put an end to this false teaching. And the way that he is to go about this is he is to speak truth to the congregation, truth in contrast to the lies being told by the liars. He's to present truthfully and accurately the true gospel message and then specifically the things that Paul is addressing to him in this letter. And we see in verse 6 that Timothy has been trained, or maybe some of your Bibles say nourished, and that's probably even a better word, nourished in the words of faith and good doctrine. He had been nourished in Scripture and taught the doctrine and the theology behind the Scripture. And now Paul is giving Timothy this mandate to pass on the things 
that he had learned so well. He is to teach these things again so that those within the church would know how to behave and the church would be protected and people would start believing and acting as they should. Paul knows that right doctrine leads to right living. Right doctrine leads to right living. And that's what Paul is after. This is why he leaves Timothy in Ephesus to deal with these problems, to lead this struggling church back away from these false teachers to sound teaching that he knows will lead the people back to right living and a right witness in the community. That is his mandate. This church is in turmoil, not just the church, but many households are in the church are within turmoil. People are bickering and arguing, arguing within households. The worship of the church is disrupted. Some in the church have strayed from the faith. And Paul knows that it is important for Timothy and for the others to remain committed to the true gospel message, not only for the sake of their faith, but for the sake of their witness to the people around them. So now, in the first part of verse 7, we see some things about this false teaching. First, he calls the false teaching irreverent. Another word for irreverent uh, would be ungodly. And that's obvious it would be ungodly because it is what is the teaching that is inspired by demons. Demons who want to lead people astray. Demons who want to corrupt and pervert the true gospel message so that, it, so that other people will not believe and become part of this church. Additionally, he calls the teaching nothing but a bunch of silly myths. Or literally, old wives' tales is the literal translation of that word. Now, we all know what an old wives' tale is. When example I thought of is when Laura was pregnant, uh, she had really bad heartburn. And Laura's mother, who happens to be here today, was convinced and would have taken an oath before Congress that that meant the baby was going to have hair when she was born. <laughs> she did have hair when she was born, so maybe she was right. But I don't really know where these types of things come from, but we know what an old wives' tale is. It's, it's these things that spread. I'm not calling you old either. Um, but th that is um, an old wives' tale. Um, now, the point to all this is Timothy, I mean, Paul sees this stuff that's going on that Timothy has to deal with as simply foolishness. It's just some type of something that is speculation pulled out of thin air. It has no real um, basis to it. Um, much like heartburn, meaning that a baby is going uh, to have a head full of hair, um, th this false teaching, it, it doesn't really have any basis to it at all. It's sort of silly. Uh, so instead of paying attention to the teaching of these old wives' tale, Paul tells Timothy in the second half of this verse to train yourself for godliness. Now, this is getting to the main emphasis of the sermon for today. Train yourself for godliness. The word used here for train, it's an interesting word. Um, it's the word that we get our English word gymnasium from. The Greek word is gymnazo, and you can hear in there gymnasium, gymnazo. Um, and the gymnasium, much like today, uh, we are very interested in sports and athletics. The gymnasium in Paul's day in the Greco-Roman world, it was a big deal. Um, in Greek thought, it was important to be fit both in mind and both in body. And so in the schools, in the education of the time, it would include uh, training in rhetoric. It would include training in literature. It would include training in music. But it would also include training in athletics. And the place where this training took place was in the gymnasia or the gymnasium. 
and the athletic games and competitions, because they were such a huge part of this culture, it's common for us to see in the Bible, Paul will use illustrations uh, that are uh, akin to athletic events. Things like running in a marathon or a stadium race. Paul speaks of boxing. He uses all sorts of different athletic references in his teaching. And so here he makes a comparison between bodily training and spiritual training. And it is because bodily training, just like bodily training requires uh, physical exertion and attention and effort, so does spiritual training. It requires focused, diligent, day after day attention and effort, much like those that were training to compete in these stadium events every year in Paul's time. But notice what he says in verse 8. He says that while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. And this is because bodily training is for this life only. Now we can spend hours and hours and hours at the gym or on the track, but when this earthly life is over, all the benefit that we have gained from that has been had. It is over. We cannot take those benefits with us. And in eternity, you will look over at someone like me who could use a lot more bodily training and say, wait a minute, his body's perfect just like mine. That's not fair. (laughs) Plus, I'll probably get there before you do. (laughs) But going back to the question I asked at the beginning of my sermon, does the Bible have anything to say about our culture's practice of making New Year's resolutions. Well, the Bible doesn't mention New Year's resolutions explicitly, but I do believe it does offer some things for us to consider when we set out to determine the types of things we should resolve or commit ourselves to achieving this year. Now, first of all, before I go any further, it is important to note that Paul is not condemning exercise. Not at all. He says it is a value. Look there, he says bodily exercises are some value. And the truth is, it would be best if we were all very healthy and lived long lives that we were committed to sharing the gospel to the day we died at a ripe old age because we were physically fit. Um, If Satan can't capture our souls, he doesn't want us meddling around with his attempts to capture other souls. And one way for him to accomplish that is for us to be unhealthy and die prematurely, right? So Paul is not condemning uh, bodily exercise. Sometimes I wish he was, but he's not. Um, What Paul is trying to do is draw a distinction between activities that have some value and activities that have value in every way or activities that are eternally valuable. So while Paul uses bodily exercise as an illustration here, That's not all that he's talking about. He's talking about any other activity that has some value, just not eternal value. And this includes a whole host of things, lots of the things that we would put normally on our resolutions each year. There are some activities that we give our time to on earth that have only temporal value. And then we know that there are some that have eternal value. Again, ultimately, no matter how much weight I lose, no matter how good of shape I get my heart into by running, even if I extend my life 10 
or 15 years, there will come an hour when my heart will stop beating. That is going to happen. And so while extending my life is good, nonetheless, the benefits of that are limited to this present life. And while godliness, on the other hand, Paul tells us holds value for this life and also for the life to come. So Paul does give us some guidance on our resolutions. And not just our resolutions, but all the things that we commit ourselves to in this life. The fact is there are some things that are good and there are some things that are best. It is not wrong to do the good. It is certainly not wrong that we exercise. That's a good thing. But let's make sure we're not only exercising ourselves physically in 2013, but let's make sure we're exercising ourselves spiritually as well. Train yourself for godliness. But now, how are we supposed to train ourselves for godliness? What exactly does that mean? Well, I think it means growing in Christian character. The Bible, we know, tells us all about how to behave as Christians. Or maybe put another way, the Bible tells us how Christians will behave. And all Christian character growth begins with being devoted to God. It begins with being devoted to God and then desiring to do what is pleasing to him. Now, listen to this. This is important. Without the desire to please God as our motivation, without the desire to please God as our motivation, any improvements in our behavior are not godliness. They are something like moralism or legalism or self-improvement. Godliness has at its center the desire to please God. And the best definition I could find for the word godliness comes from a book by one of my favorite writers and Bible teachers, Jerry Bridges, who wrote a little book called The Practice of Godliness. Um, he wrote a lot of, he's written a lot of books. He says that godliness is devotion to God, which results in a life that is pleasing to him. Devotion to God, which results in a life that is pleasing to him. So notice, devotion to God comes first. And then flowing out from that devotion, that commitment to God, will be a life that is pleasing to him. So how do we become more godly? The first step is devoting ourselves to God, loving him, desiring him, desiring a more intimate relationship with him, wanting to hear from him in his word, speaking to him through our prayers, devoting ourselves to God. And then as we get to know God better, we will over time become more and more like God, more and more godly. But also, we become more godly by being more godly. We become more godly by practicing godliness. We are to actively pursue it. Like the athlete who practices running, jumping, and throwing, we as Christians are to practice love and humility and patience and so forth. Toddlers learn to walk by walking. Children learn to speak by speaking. Musicians learn to be better musicians by playing music. Football players learn to be better football players by playing football. Doctors become better doctors by practicing medicine. Preachers become better preachers, hopefully, by preaching. 
In other words, we cannot become more godly simply by knowing how to be more godly. It is something that we have to practice. And although God gets all the credit for any progress that we make, we in some way have to participate and cooperate with the Holy Spirit in this endeavor. We can't just sit back as passive recipients as God pours out more godliness upon us. Paul says to Timothy what in this verse? Train who? Train yourself for godliness. It is not be trained in godliness. It is not passive. Train yourself is an imperative. It is a command. So we have a role to play. There's a cooperation between us and the Holy Spirit. And how all that works out, I don't know. I cannot tell you. But in some way, the Holy Spirit does the work and we do the work too. We struggle. We strive. But it is in God's strength that we do the struggling so he gets the credit. Many of the things about the Christian faith are a great mystery and I I think this is one of them. But when Paul says, train yourself, he means that we have to practice the things that we learn in Scripture. Again, right doctrine leads to right living. And the place where we learn right doctrine is in the Bible. The role of the Bible in the Christian life can never, ever, ever, ever be overstated. It plays the most prominent role in our growth toward godliness. And that is because in the Bible... It is where we learn what is pleasing to God. It is in the Bible where we learn what it means to be godly, which includes both the fear of God and the love of others. If you remember last week, Chris preached a wonderful sermon on Philippians 2. And in Philippians 2, it is a passage where we are told to look at the example of Jesus Christ, who being God himself, demonstrated perfectly what it meant to be godly. Who better to demonstrate what it means to be godly than God in the flesh? But in Philippians 2, we are told in verses 6 and 7 that though Jesus existed in the form of God and he had equal status with God, that he emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant. He became a humble baby who would grow up to be a humble man who would die a shameful and humble death on a cross. And Paul tells us in Philippians 2 to have this same mindset as we go through life. He tells us to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. He tells us in humility to count others as more significant than ourselves. He tells us not only to look out for our own interests, but for the care and the concern of others. And no one in history has done this better than our Savior, Jesus Christ. There is no greater humbling in history than God stepping off of his throne, coming down to the earth, and being laid in a, in a manger by hands that he created, only to grow up later to be hung on a cross by another set of hands that he created. And this is the mindset that we are to assume for ourselves as Christians who are training ourselves for godliness. I saw a quote last week from one of my uh, former professors, Douglas Webster. Uh, Dr. Webster said that the Son of Man, the Son of God, became the Son of Man so that sons of men might become sons of God. The Son of God 
became son, the son of man so that sons of men might become the sons of God. Jesus, God the Son, willingly took the form of a servant, of a man, so that we might become like him, namely children of God. And yet so often we do not look like him. So often I do not put others in front of myself, do not hold others as more significant than myself. Than myself. And I suspect the same is true for many of you. And so we need to train ourselves for godliness, and that means learning from the Bible and then practicing what we learn. We become more godly again by being more godly. We learn by doing, doing over and over again till it becomes second nature. Like any athlete, football player who practices all week long, week after week, so that when Saturday arrives, he is ready uh, to really perform on the field, to perform when it counts. We as Christians must practice godliness every day with the same intensity so that when game day arrives for us and when we really need to display our godliness, it is second nature to us. We are to exercise godliness with the purpose of being more godly. So it's not only knowing what it means to be godly, it's being practiced up at doing it. I mentioned earlier that Paul's primary purpose for writing this letter to Timothy was so that if he was delayed in coming, that Timothy might be better able to communicate how the people within the church ought to behave. So much of this con- the content of 1 Timothy provides instruction on how to be godly. And so we as Christians can use this instruction today as we are trying to train ourselves for godliness. But this is not true only for Paul's letter to Timothy, but for all of Scripture. If you turn over with me just a couple of pages to 2 Timothy 3, look at verses 16 and 17 to see what Paul says about Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. Brothers and sisters, a big part of our training for godliness is to be acquainted with God's word in an intimate way. It teaches us, it corrects us, it equips us for every good work. We need to read it. We need to hear it preached on Sundays. We need to memorize portions of it so that when the devil comes prowling around, we have a passage in our holster to pull out. We need to meditate on God's word. We need to pray God's words. These are all crucial steps to being trained in godliness. Now, admittedly, none of this is easy. Just like it is not easy to train to become an elite athlete. This is not a five steps to a more godly life sermon. The fact is that you cannot make any progress in godliness on your own, nor will you desire to on your own. As I said earlier, none of us can make progress in godliness without the Holy Spirit who turned us into a new creation with a new heart, a heart that is capable of living in the way that Jesus lived and loving in the way that Jesus loved. 
And this same Holy Spirit guides us, directs us, convicts us, changes our own desires and changes our own wills to live in a way that is pleasing to God, to live a godly life. Brothers and sisters, if you want to grow in godliness, first devote yourself to God completely and then consume his word voraciously. Treat it like your food and you're starving. When you do so, the Holy Spirit, he will take and he will chisel that scripture on your heart in such a way that it becomes a part of you and you will be more godly. And it's not magic. It's not magic. All Christians know that being godly is hard work. Just like the things that an athlete goes through to win his or her competition, we must have the same level of commitment as we pursue godliness. It takes work. It takes effort. But it's not work to earn our salvation. Jesus Christ already did that work. But it is working to become more like the one who saved us. And in verse 10, we see that it is important work. In verse 10, we see just how important it is. Paul says that it is to this end, to the end that other individuals pursue and train themselves in godliness that he and Timothy toll and strive. He wants them to take hold of godliness and take hold of the value that it contains, a value far superior to any temporal, physical exercise The word Paul uses in verse 10 for striving or struggling is the Greek word agnonizomai, agnonizomai, which you can hear agony in that word. It is a struggle. It is an agonizing struggle. Paul uses this word later in 1 Timothy when he urges Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. He says, I have fought the good fight of faith and I have finished the race. He tells Timothy to do the same. Paul is agonizing over seeing others become more godly. And the fact that Paul is struggling in this way and so willing to do it tells us how important it is. It is evidence to us of how important Paul sees us training ourselves for godliness. It is really important that we progress in our faith after our initial profession of faith. But we must be willing to make the effort We must be willing to take the time and commit ourselves to the lifelong endeavor of training ourselves for godliness. So as you're sitting down today and tomorrow, considering uh, the resolutions that you will make uh, for the new year, much of which will be around um, physical exercise and, and so forth, I know that mine will be, I ask you to consider your spiritual health as well. I urge you to make some resolutions that will help you to progress in godliness next year. Resolve to devote yourself fully to God. First, devote yourself fully to God and become more acquainted with him through consuming his word. And then don't only read it, but practice the things that you learn there. That, my friends, is the path to godliness. It is not easy. As I've said, and Paul used the illustration, it's like training to be an athlete. It's hard. It's rigorous. But I can assure you with all the authority of God's word that it is valuable in every way. It holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come.
I pray that God blesses you and your family in 2013. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it does instruct us, that it corrects us and it guides us. We thank you for your spirit, Father, who dwells within each of us. Father, I pray that uh, your spirit will be with us as we are considering training ourselves for godliness over this next year, Father. Convict us in that area and then help us as we struggle in your strength, Father. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.